emergency death sentence for this week. Uh, no news, or rather, there is news, but we're going to work it into to the discussion itself. You'll, you'll know when we're doing news. And we've got a, an unprecedented um, thing for us. We've, we've talked about Nobel Prize winners like um, Kazuo Shiguro. We've talked about Booker Prize winners like Ian, Mc, um, Ian McEwen. But this is the first time we have an AVN-nominated writer on the show. <laughs> the writer of AVN's um, best non-porn thing, uh, Christopher Zyshek. Uh You may know him as Danny Wilde. And um, he is he's the author of three books, the third being Body to Job, which is out on Barnacle Press. I believe that's right. And um, yeah, it's, it's good. It's dark and it's sexy, but it's good. So, hi, Chris. I want to. I want to thank you first, Chris, for um, writing a nonfiction book that Gareth made me read that was good. Because yeah. there's been a streak recently where that has not been the case, and you broke that streak. And I personally want to thank you. Oh well, well, thank you um, for the kind words, and thanks for having me on. And I, I'm glad you both like the book. Yeah. Well. That kind of brings up a, a thing, because is this nonfiction? Because there's a ton of it that's, <laughs> unless you're insane, um, <laughs> which you could be, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, so let's kind of start by putting this book in its, like, its little box. Is this fiction? Is it memoir? Is it autofiction? Well, it's been it marketed as, as memoir, and it's predominantly memoir, but... My my previous novel was very much autofiction, and uh, I wanted to incorporate that in this book as well. But I think because so much of it was was strictly memoir, the publisher just wanted to put that out. But there's a little uh, addendum in the beginning of the book. I don't know if it was in the version I sent you, but it says something yeah, like, "It's it's it tied into all the um, copyrighty stuff." Yeah. I actually forget the wording exactly, but it says that, you know, these stories closely resemble my memoirs, but they are also works of fiction, which is... Those exact words? Yep. But, yeah? Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, so why don't we just start off by learning a little bit more about you, because, you know, obviously, you know, prior to, uh, prior to writing, you're in the adult film industry. Um, right. So uh, for about, what, it was eight years? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I got in when I was 19, almost 20, and it, my career ended uh, either right before or right after I turned 28, so roughly okay. eight years. It kind of feels like when I talk to, like, to you now and to other people I've had on the show where I, like, People have like gone to war or have done some like crazy shit in their twenties. I think uh -huh. back to my twenties and it was like university followed by more university followed by shitty jobs. I don't feel like I had a twenties, but your twenties seem to be like going off to Ibiza and having crazy sex. And <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it seemed like you had a hell of more of a twenties than I did. Yeah, a lot of it was a good time. I mean, some of it was weird, but um, I mean, a lot of it was weird. 
but I would say more or less, it, it was more positive than not. Uh, and yeah, I was the porn performer, Danny Wild for eight ish years. And I don't know, you can look me up on Pornhub, I guess, but I'm now, uh, living a little bit more of a conventional life <laughs> and I've written some books and uh, body to job is the latest. I actually have a uh, porn hub open on my computer. So one, sorry to my wife and I'm, I'm not looking at like you on Pornhub. I'm looking at the all time most viewed porn clips in the entire world for all of the time that Pornhub's been around. What are they? Uh, obviously, number one is Kim Kardashian. That's okay. Know, that makes sense. At two hundred two million views. Wow. Uh, and the second is Horny Boy fucked his stepmom. At one hundred twenty eight million views. Sign of the times. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of stepmom content on this. Stepmom and stepsisters are. Yeah, it's this it's really is just, hot right now. I've heard. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. I, I have no idea why, but there was there was a cultural shift. Um, yeah, there's actually been a lot of um, great writing. I mean, this will be no surprise to anyone in the room, obviously. But there's been a lot of great writing by non-sexiverse um, social critics and social theorists about how trends in pornography can be more insightful for deeper cultural um shifts than a lot of the other ephemera that we kick up because of precisely because of the intimacy uh of people's relationship with the pornography that they view that you can get yeah you can get an angle at a deeper psychological component than like oh they're buying crocs now oh they're not buying crocs anymore now they're buying toe shoes like sure where's toe shoes should go to prison so and it was insane the theorists that brought that up that were then uh shouted down by people who were like, No, I'm too square to think about that. No. <laughs> so so why why are people into step siblings and uh parents nowadays then? What's the what's the theory behind that? I yeah. don't know. I mean that I, I just that seems fairly straightforward. I don't do you think there's a deep, deeper meaning behind that other than people Want to fuck their stepmom or something? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't have a stepmom, so I don't. Um, I don't so know most, what the, the psychological thing is there. But sorry, most go on. fetishes, at least on some level, operate on the notion of taboo and the violation of taboo, especially of something like a primal pleasure uh, crescendoing beyond the threshold of a taboo. Um, it's same as like sex in public or risky sex in general things like that um so that i think combined maybe with the notions of uh a comfort and security of home just turning inward into this like really really weird fetishistic spiral but i mean all all fetishes are weird so that's like whatever <laughs> like, <laughs> right I'm not here to get judgy. I don't. I don't think you can find someone who's like the specific thing they're into and be like, "Oh, that's that's totally regular." Sex itself is pretty weird. So, um. oh yeah, it's all pretty weird. So, yes. Yeah, speaking of pretty weird, um, so the stuff in in the book that's more than more than memoir, the the stuff that's obviously fiction, right? What? Was, what 
what drew you to to write that? Why why not go down the straight up memoir route? Because I mean, it's easy to you know market a memoir, especially a, a sexy memoir. Yeah, why? I don't say well, why make it difficult for yourself. But why put that little little kink in there? Uh, well, there's a number of reasons. The first being that most of the stuff that that kind of goes beyond uh, real life that, that veers into f fiction has to do with kind of the end of my career and um, kind of this intermediary part of my life where I was trying to figure out what to do after porn. And I think that was one of the most difficult times of my life, maybe since I was in uh, middle school or early high school. Um, in a lot of ways, I mean, it was financially devastating. I lost kind of like, you know, the career I had for my entire twenties. Um, you could say in a way I lost an identity. I was uh, doing a lot of like in-person sex work. Um, and it just was, I had a really kind of tumultuous relationship uh, also. And I think um, <clears throat> it may be easier or safer or, or at least more fun to package that emotional duress into uh, something that is more extreme because I grew up very into horror and kind of underground metal and things like that. And so a lot of the aesthetics of, of that material deal with uh, violence, sexual violence. Um, and, you know, I think when you, when you think of like uh, metal bands, <laughs> the ones that are maybe a little bit more sophisticated seem to package a lot of like teenage angst into these metaphors that are larger than life and, uh, you know, have to do with, uh, yeah, just a lot of, of like, kind of like violent material or demonic energy or some crazy bullshit like that. And so, uh, that really informed my aesthetic with writing and so i kind of put that back out into the world and uh so i think it gets it gets into that territory towards the end of the book yeah definitely yeah i mean there's plenty of places in here which are just straight up body horror you know just nasty stuff um so apart from like horror and metal aesthetics what who are your influences here because I've, I've got some guesses but uh let's see if i'm right so okay. <laughs> I mean, in, while I was in my 20s, uh, I think the biggest influence on me is probably like Dennis Cooper. Um, Bingo. Got it. Yeah. Okay. okay. Let's see if well, we, can yeah. get, we can get both. I, I guess two. Let's see if we can get both. Uh, I mean, in my later 20s, I got really into like Michelle Wellebeck. I mean, I, in my teenage years, okay. it's probably more obvious people like like Brett Easton Ellis or something. Boom, like that. two for two. I know it. I really liked Ryu Mirakami also, like in late mm -hmm. high school. And after that, I, I just read a lot more. And so I think my influence became just whatever I could get my hands on. But I mean, I'm trying to these days just read more contemporary fiction to see who my peers are and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Who do you like out here right now? Who's good? Um, I just discovered this author named Meg McCarville, uh, and she wrote a book called, oh, fuck, I need to look this up really quick. Meg it's like 
Yeah. Make, make okay. four circles. Yep. Okay. In uh, she, she, this book came out on a small press called Amphetamine Sulfate, which is putting out my next book this fall, and uh, it's one of the funniest, most disgusting, and just like aggressive books I've read in a while. That's also really, really easy to read, and just um, I don't know, but it's I, I think by today's standards, also like very problematic, and in a way that appeals to me because I think a lot of the indie presses right now are putting out these kind of very politically safe uh, books. And, and I grew up kind of into, I don't know, I was attracted to transgressive subject matter. And I, I see that kind of disappearing a little bit these days. Yeah. I'm looking at um, Meg McCarvel's Instagram and it's horrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she looks, I haven't met her yet, but I, I think I'm going to uh, in, in November, we're doing a reading together. Yeah. This is a, uh... This is about as close to what you can not get away with on Instagram as you can get. But uh, yeah, it's all, it's pretty like, yeah, it's all like transgressive stuff. So, and. But I also love um, Chelsea Hodson, for example, who I think is, yeah, is cool. not working in the transgressive realm, but she's kind of this beloved New York lit girl who she put out a book last year, I think it was. Uh, Tonight, I'm someone else. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, the writing's just uh, really clean, poetic, and also about that kind of uh, emotional intimacy and things like that, and, and kind of longing and all these things that I really relate to. Um, just like a middle class American kid, uh, <laughs> just kind of introverted and whatever. I don't know. I think it's very beautiful writing. Yeah, yeah. Chelsea Hodson's damn good writer. Um, so, hold on, get my notes, um, so one of the, one of the cool things I thought about the book is it has, it's not just a, a misery memoir, although, you know, you, you go through some really bad shit in it, I think that's fair to say, sure. there's also, you're also talking about this really weird moment where porn went from something that made a hell of a lot of money to the point where MindGeek, who you call out by name, the company who makes uh, Pornhub and like a dozen other various porn things, right? and who runs all these studios, which used to be independent, and now they've got, gone all gobbled up. And yeah, there's a, a chapter in it where you're basically talking about like how big actresses can, can can't get work anymore. How you haven't gone any work for ages. So right. yeah, tell us a little about that time. I mean, what, what like because we were all kind of living in the post Pornhub world now. What was it yeah, like, like on the ground during it? Well, I have to say that this is. The book, even when talking about that, is a little bit dated, and I'm less upset about Pornhub these days because it's changed the way it's it totally changed the way the porn industry works. But now things have leveled out to a certain degree where people can make money again, but I think they have to be much more um, like independent producers of amateur content. So it now works a lot more like YouTube, where in the beginning it was just 
it was just stolen content and it was ruining all of the studios and yeah, it was kind of a fucked up time. So basically um, prior to 2007, 2008, the porn industry was just raking in profits because people were still buying DVDs. We were kind of in this uh, heyday of internet porn where people were still paying for subscriptions. And so, you know, this stuff wasn't free in the way that it is now. It wasn't like you could go on Pornhub and just get anything you want immediately. And there was an endless stream of it. Um, you could get clips here and there, but it was like, or you could steal it off of, I don't know, Kazaa or LimeWire or whatever the fuck peer-to-peer mm-hmm. software was available at the time. But other than that, it was like people paid for porn. And then Pornhub appeared. And at first, um, Pornhub was like, I, I don't know if this is entirely true, but it appeared so. And the rumor was that the guy who owned uh, the company at the time, it was called Manwin before it was MindGeek. And he was paying people in Canada to rip DVDs and just put them online. And companies were trying to fight it. They would send DMCA notices and like the scene would get taken down, but then the next day it would be back up again. And no one had enough money or wherewithal to kind of fight this. And so unlike the music industry that has these kind of big corporate lawyers to deal with that stuff. The porn industry just fell apart. And a lot of um, the companies that used to be really big heavyweights started to see like financial collapse in the near future. So the guy who owned uh, Manwin got some sort of loan from Wall Street, the story goes, and went around and started buying up like really big studios like elegant angel he bought up like one of the biggest gay companies called men.com twisties obviously browsers so Pornhub became basically the de facto place to watch porn on the internet people no longer googled porn so they would not end up at your personal site or even your like small corporate site they would just go to Pornhub and type in you know big butts or whatever they want and it would go to some free porn um and then all the ads and all of the banners and all that would just go to stuff that was owned by the parent company um then things started to change that the guy who started Pornhub um got kind of kicked out of the company and i don't know all the details but there's something has to do with tax evasion etc etc i think he went to prison briefly and now they're kind of operating more above board so a lot of porn performers have realized that they can make their own stuff and put it on Pornhub, and they have like a payment structure where you get i don't know i don't know what it is but you make money off of your your scenes now and mm-hmm. You can even kind of create banner ads to go back to your personal website. And I think it basically works that if you're a big porn performer these days, you kind of work for browsers or any of these like mainstream companies as an advertisement so that people get to know you, then they follow you on Twitter, and then they end up, you know, signing up for your OnlyFans or buying your little clips and stuff. And I think you can start to make a decent living that way now. But for a few years, 
when the mainstream porn companies were collapsing and all these other things weren't available yet, it seemed like porn was over and I was living in that time. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. It must've sucked. Um, yeah. I mean, it, from what I can tell, not being a, you know, being very much on one end of the, uh, porn production paradigm, mm-hmm. uh, the consumer side, um, like, yeah, you, you, you're right. You can, probably make a, a decent amount of money i don't it, it is like any kind of consolidation in media where it's like youtube having all the online content or disney having all the films right. it does it does mean that one company gets to control everything and you know like we, we joked earlier about the step mom and stepsister scene bit but that's like purely a function of pornhub that's it, I think it's even a, um, it's even a subcategory on here. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's kind of and now like that's changed how performers have to do their scenes. They have to now play out the step sister fantasy for people, or right. do ASMR, which has become a thing. And um, yeah, it's a it's a weird, it's a weird time to be a. Uh, a dude who needs to jack off. Um, so, uh, although it's it's never exactly been a, a normal time to do that, because Clyde Landon said, "Is there's nothing normal about sex? It's all weird." Oh, I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> I still edit some porn, and but I was doing that a lot more in the in the years following my retirement as a performer. And I have to say, when you remove your arousal from the process of watching hours of of people fucking it is it is at best boring as hell and at worst it's fucking disgusting and <laughs> i mean like, that. like what what, yeah. what 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 does that involve because i've i've done video editing at work it's yeah you're right it's boring as hell i didn't do it too fucking but um like yeah it's a porn thing together well it depends i mean some of it is more complicated especially when there's multiple cameras used. But if it's like a, a straightforward gonzo scene, I mean, a lot of the companies that were hiring me, I would make like a stylized intro. So there's always either the story at the beginning of it that's relatively brief, or there's some kind of vignette to music that's like a little bit like a music video. And then the sex starts. And if it's just one camera that kind of goes through... I started getting to the point where I just edit and fast forward and kind of listen to when the director would say something so I could cut that out or, you know, there's an awkward camera move or they have to cut or whatever. Um, with, with like a two or three camera setup, it's just about finding the best shot that's happening and also cutting out directorials. I mean, I think that's a lot of it because whoever's behind the camera, like, just like open up, like pull her ass to the side or you're blocking the penetration or blah, blah. You got to cut out all that shit. Cool. Yeah. But that's, but that's soul crushing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's adds, not that interesting. It adds a nice Dasadian uh, twist to the whole thing. You're like, Oh, sex, that's normal. And then you're assaulted with hours of it in a completely unaroused state and forced to engage with it because of the editorial work. And you're like, no, the human body's a nightmare. Oh yeah. I forgot about that for a little bit, but it's coming roaring back. (laughs) Yeah. 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 
I, I pretty much hate porn now, not from like a, a moral point of view. I just think it's, um, it's just one of the most redundant and kind of boring mediums to work with outside of, of arousal. I mean, I think when your dick is hard, it's wonderful, but to work with in any other capacity, it's, it's very, uh, I don't know. I just think it's kind of stupid. To say. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get into that more of the stupidity of porn in a minute, but um, let's play some music first. Okay. Uh, so, I've tried to find one of the only only sexy black metal artists. Not only physically. I mean, he is you know kind of cute. But um, yeah, a, a pregnant light. A pregnant uh, light. I'm gonna look that up. Yeah, he's cool. It's, it's all self-released, all self-produced. He does a hundred percent of the music in it. You know, drums, bass, guitars, vocals, and he's been around a, a long ass time. And all putting stuff out on his own label, um, Colloquial Sound Recordings, which he also does like other projects on. He's got like Doom projects and hardcore projects and just tons of stuff. Really prolif- prolific guy who just like is just 100% into making really cool art. So um, his, uh, his albums also have the unique aesthetic touch of not looking like they're black metal albums in any way. No. It, there's just like a picture of his face. He's looking kind of kind of moody. He's looking down away from the camera. The other yeah, like ones... shots with the uh, where he's uh, pulling off the Ray Bans or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he, he just... looks. Yeah, he yeah, looks he... like a like a male Joan Didion or something. Like that. <laughs> he he has a, a an album called "My Game Doesn't Have a Name." It's black metal. Yeah. And this new one's black metal, and it's called. And there's a, a song here called "I Am the Man of Your Dreams." Oh, this is one I can't wait to hear this. Let's do it. Yeah, so yeah, that's the song I'm going to play. Actually, "I Am the Man of Your Dreams" because there's a nice little synergy there. And um, yeah, "A Fragment Light" has just been slaying it for like ten, fifteen years now. Everything he puts out is generally really good. So yeah, here's his new one. It's an album called Broken Play. It's on Colloquial Sound Recordings, because of course it is. And here's I Am The Man Of Your Dreams.
So that was Pregnant Light uh, with I'm the Man of Your Dreams. And yeah, just like zero cliches in that. There was no like winter moon frost graveyard bullshit in it. It was just, he's not pretending to be an orc. You know, he's just a regular guy, like being cool and playing some like kick-ass black metal. So yeah, big, big shout outs to him. He comes from an alternate universe where, um, as much as I love extreme metal, it's not cool. But he comes from the universe where it is cool. Yeah, where, like... where, like, you can just be chilling in Paris with, like, a $4,000 jacket. And someone's like, what are you listening to? And you're like, Bathory. And people are like, <laughs> ah. <laughs> well, the world like... we wished we lived in. I know, right? <laughs> I just, Yeah. Was it didn't like Kanye West wear like a Baffery t-shirt at one point? I yeah, saw that. For like, who was the other? Like, Lil Wayne had a, a jacket with a bunch of like metal band patches at, at one point, but I think it was from a designer. I'm not sure if he's actually into that shit. Yeah, like like some designers, like uh, Rick Owens, like has a really really strong like metal influence, and you know he he does like six thousand dollar t-shirts and stuff. Like, sure. I I think like we'd be surprised by the amount of like high fashion and high art people who are into like the same dumb shit we are. Yeah, I I worked briefly with uh, Matthew Barney on one of his films oh, years ago, oh, and he uh, he <laughs> Sorry, was like, we're just coming to that. fuck shit. Oh, wow. <laughs> Did you meet? Yeah, I was in- He's he's great. I was in uh, River of Fundament. I don't know if you got to see that when it did its kind of museum tour, but no. he came to set in like anal cunt and like cannibal corpse shirts, and he uh, he was really into this band Wold at the time. I don't know if you've heard of them. W O L D. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. They they put out an incredible record last year. Yeah, well, oh, I didn't even know. I haven't listened to it. In- yeah, they're from uh, they're from Manchester, where I live. So. Oh, yeah. Hoping to bump into him one of these days. It's just one guy, right? I, think it's, I don't know if that's true live, but that's what he said at the time. Oh, well, it may have started as a, as a one-man project. That's, that's how a lot of these things have generations. Yeah. So. I mean, this was also seven years ago or so. So, that, I mean, that's very likely. River of Fundament is based on uh, Ancient Evenings by Norman Mahler. That's yeah. true. Huh. This wow. looks really tight. It's an opera. Yeah, well, it's a uh, it's a film, but it it works like an opera, and I think it played at a lot of opera houses, and also at I don't know, it played here at the um, museum, the Museum of Contemporary Art, I think. Yeah, at the Geffen oh, in Los Angeles. Maggie Gyllenhaal and Paul Giamatti are in it. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That yeah, I had a very cool. very small role, but. Uh, I was, I was covered in uh, fake shit and was kind of the like a, a eunuch servant to uh, some ancient dead Egyptian uh, king or something like that. Yeah, that's Matthew Barney right there. Yeah, that's that's his that's his stick. I heard um, from a friend recently that Matthew Barney actually owned and operated an art space in uh, in New York for a while, and would host like absolutely totally out there extreme metal and punk acts there 
I think that's true. I think Wolds played there. I mean, that's what he told me. That's fucking tight. That's Love cool that guy. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, let's talk about you because, you know, picking up Matthew Barney here, but yeah. It's, uh... Sure. Hey, what do you want to know? Uh, oh. a direct a direct comment about the book because we haven't um engaged as much with just just the book um sure. you're uh so this is more comment for uh for the audience although it's a bunch of compliments for you so uh so indulge yourself um your your prose is absolutely beautiful like you you cut the startling uh juxtaposition of very um simple and direct and evocative language that also doesn't feel stilted or like artificially simple uh even in the midst of the most horrifying moments um it has just this really uh beautiful i i i'm not breezy isn't quite the right word because that implies like an over lightness to it but it it stays very very transparent and uh like uninflected even when you're um like no matter what you're talking about you have this very even tone across uh across the course of the book which makes it this um tremendously fascinating read um it's part of the reason why even in moments where it feels where the fiction feels like it's creeping in more it still maintains that memoirish tonality i can see why the the publisher wanted to um wanted to publish it more as a memoir than as a work of fiction uh, well, well, thank you, first of all, for for saying all that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. And that, that comes, I mean, this book in particular was written not as a cohesive whole at first. Um, some, of the, some of the early stories in particular were posted to a blog I had a long time ago. They've been heavily edited for uh, the book release, but... When I approached my publisher about doing something like this, um, you know, I, I think I had a short story collection in mind at first. And then when they kind of talked about doing a memoir, I sat down with some material I had already and tried to fill in the pieces and make this a bit more cohesive. So I don't think all of the writing started that way, but at the time that I was putting it together, you know, I, I just, uh, went in with the intention to make this kind of a uniform style. And I think I'm just someone who likes to edit my stuff like over and over and over again until it becomes rather simple. And I don't know. I mean, like we said earlier in this in the podcast, I'm really informed by like the style of Dennis Cooper and, and people like that who have this very minimalist uh, prose and, I try to incorporate that in my stuff as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the um, sorry, go on. You go on. I mean, yeah, stylistically, when I was thinking of like Bretty Sturless, I was often reading this thinking, yeah, it's actually better than, or I like this more than Bretty Sturless's prose because he feels like very, like the opposite of what Landon was saying about like, you know, kind of forced minimalism, like trying to just like flatten the whole thing until it's, because if you make it so flat that it will somehow become profound, that kind of like very, um, like very forced minimalism kind of style. But but you don't have that. You, you you're willing to do stuff like say, I first fucked for money at the age of nineteen, which is 
you know, you could find that in Bratty Snellis. And uh-huh. but then you know, there's there's more style to it. It feels more like you like writing more than uh Bratty Snellis does. Because I think he, he mostly likes like being mean to people on his podcast and saying really dumb political stuff at the moment. So I don't know. It's remarkable that so no, he's a. I know he's kind of fallen out of vogue lately, but I've uh, I'm actually kind of personal friends with him, and I was on his oh. podcast. He's nice to me, at least. Okay. But <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll be nice to him, Dad. Oh no, I mean whatever. I understand. Like a lot of my friends think he's a piece of shit right now, but <laughs> I don't know that I will stand up for his politics or whatever. Though I I may agree with more of them than than some of my friends, but. At, I don't know. He's a uh, he's a provocateur, and now he's older and kind of out of touch with the current generation. Who like who controls uh, not the media, but at least social media. And uh, I think he just likes pushing people's buttons. And I don't know. It's just we used to kind of value that in the culture, and right now that's not true. And I think it's it probably looks a little bit embarrassing sometimes now the way it comes across yeah Yeah, so we've got a we've got a cool culture now where like (laughs) selling your bath water on instagram is a normal thing so yo she's a queen that's amazing (laughs) she took take that gamer money who who are we talking about in particular her name's name's uh, l delphine uh she is a, a a twitch streamer so one of those, um, just specifically on the sexier end of Twitch streaming, so deliberately wearing provocative outfits and then gaming online. Uh, and she, I'm not sure if she streamed like in a bathing suit in a full bathtub, but there was some implication of this. And then she began bottling and selling bath water of hers after she bathed in it hmm. to horny gamers. $30 for like... um. Like wow. like the size you get in like a like a pot of pills you get from a pharmacist, thirty bucks. Yeah, this is, made, does like... not surprise me. I mean, that seems like right? some some porn girl shit to do anyway. Yeah, I'm sure. Right? It's, yeah. it's like I don't know where the line is. Is she a sex worker? Is she a celebrity? Yeah. Is she an influence? I I don't know where the line is anymore. Like it's, it, like, it is remarkable that people can now kind of carve out these these niches for themselves to make a living doing ridiculous things like eating in, on a cam or something in front of people or, or playing video games, all of this shit. It's like, when has that ever existed in the history of humanity? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy. I, like that I eating think, on cam is really popular in South Korea for some reason. I think in some, in some way, the reason why um, provocateurs and transgressors became sort of out of vogue if that was the entirety of what you bring to the enterprise partly because the internet so broadly before you had to work to find these strange corners of the world like you had to find uh underground art underground cinema you had to go and experience these things in person and like very difficult to find physical spaces where you have to know people to get in you have to know yeah like Going to the theater and watching like um, Pink Flamingos or a Razorhead, like a midnight movie. 
like you brought up the Matthew Barney connection. There was a long period where due to deliberately minimal production of the DVDs and things like that, you basically had to know somebody to see one of his movies. Like you couldn't just go buy one. And that was a deliberate, uh, a deliberate thing. Um, But now with the internet, it's all so thrust in our face all the time, unbidden. Like you don't have to even want to see it that, there's no way that someone can be fictionalizing a provocateur um, affect and be more effective than the absolutely just bonkers shit that you'll just run into trying to like pay a bill online. <laughs> like <laughs> you're, you're oh, just absolutely. trying. To pay. Yeah, and I think maybe transgressive fiction. Uh, it. I don't even know if that word can apply anymore. I mean, because now we have it all, and I think yeah. at least anyone who's sort of reads books is like familiar with that so um but i think it's it's weird now that while that's true it's also simultaneously true that that what people are willing to publish has become very narrow in scope compared to a time before like in some ways that's fine and i think a lot of that like transgressive for the sake of being shocking is kind of boring at this place and i've i've also considered that with my own work but i don't know there there is an energy i think that's lost or at least exists and just really really micro presses or i don't know there's still like small communities that are interesting right now and i'm i'm pretty excited actually about uh the publisher who's putting out my next book they like their stuff isn't even available on amazon it's kind of thrust me down this rabbit hole of finding um, contemporary writers who I, I don't think this stuff is considered dangerous anymore, but it's just more interesting to me. And, um, or, and maybe that's just because it deals with themes that I kind of related to when I was much younger and was finding stuff like bread that, that was in, you know, big bookstores. And now, even though the older authors you can still find in that capacity. I think people writing now, you still need to like dig a little bit. Um, I, I I actually totally agree. I think that um, despite, I actually quite like uh, transgressive art. It's one of the things that um, initially drew me to things like um, underground punk and extreme metal, like the, the experience of witnessing the music video for hammer smashed face for the first time when I was very, very young and just having this like, yeah. what the fuck? Like kind of a uh, response. Likewise. I mean, we have this, um, this sort of, we get a lot of bad political reads of people like Desaad or George Bataille. But if you actually read the text in a critical capacity, there's a lot of power there. Like the, the days of Sodom being carried out, by administers in the masks of judges and priests and bankers and kings like there it's there's there's an internality there that is he isn't just like and then they shit on each other and then they shit on each other again like there's that does happen but he's (laughs) pointing that energy in a direction likewise i feel that your your book actually has a lot more of that directionality to it one the grounding in memoir to make it so that like even when it's getting fictionalized, it's not, there aren't at many moments where it feels like 
uh, he potentially just completely made this up. It it resonates with other other things that feel much more um, real and much more human. And even picking, even just the subtlety of picking a title like Body to Job, which I think is just the more that I read the book and then the more that I go back to the title, I'm like, oh, that, oh, that's such a good, mm, ah, mm. like, <laughs> I like, I like the noise you're making. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's like, that's the thing that you want when you're writing for a title where you're like the, it'll just, you're like, yeah, yeah. Body to job. Yeah. Like um, <laughs> you're reading it and you're like, oh, he nailed it. Oh, he titled the fuck out of this book. Yes. Um, yeah, and kind of like fair, even to Brett Easton Ellis, there there are moments in his career. We're somewhat remiss to say this now, but I was on actually a Brett Easton Ellis uh, oriented podcast, um, defending him in a capacity because like books like Lunar Park are the these strange and beautiful books. Um, less than zero, we may have a view of Brett from the contemporary lens, but when it came out, the fact that this was these were very near to experiences he had and it was thrusting this image of people that we knew existed and people that even in the um hoi polloi uh high white culture of america that they knew they had in their closet that they just didn't want to talk about thrusting that into the limelight and going like no rich parents have addict children who are uh perennial fuck-ups and at some point we need to reckon with this or at least acknowledge it as real and true. Like I, I feel you that it, it is frustrating that his um, at times uh, speaking personally, utterly whack-ass political stances on things will cover up um, the fact that he does have quality work. I think also that particularly something like American Psycho winds up getting deliberately misread because of pe people who have historically misread it and not gotten like, you know, Patrick Bateman is the, the bad guy, right? Like you, you read right. this book and you <laughs> somehow walked away going like Brett's condoning Patrick Bateman. Be like, no, the whole book is about how he's, are you stupid? Like, <laughs> Right. And I don't know. I think, to a certain degree, people have made too much of a, a big deal over Brett's recent stuff. And I, I think he's tried, tried to say publicly that people should not take him as seriously or as a public service announcement, like everything he's saying. Uh, because he is, at the end of the day, an entertainer. He's not a politician. Yeah. He's not making any decisions. Um, and, I, and yeah, I mean, his work definitely informed my youth. I mean, I've haven't read him as much lately, but uh, any case, I mean, whatever. I, I, he was discussing actually with Dennis Cooper this interesting fact that they both received death threats over some of their early work. Uh, in Brett's case, American Psycho, and I think Frisk for um, Dennis because it came out the year after the trial for Jeffrey Dahmer in the United States. So I don't know when he did his reading in San Francisco, like the LGBT community was like up in arms about him portraying this kind of violence and within the gay community and how, how could you do such a thing, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I think it's just, it bums me out always when people, 
um, look at things so literally. I mean, I think that's that's maybe the biggest issue I have with our uh, our kind of woke culture of the moment is that everything has to be taken like as if this is um, whatever you put in your book, you're somehow condoning that mm. or whatever you put in any kind of media, actually, um, and that you can't, you know, have have characters or situations which are um, more morally complex or even outright evil or something. And, and that's not necessarily an expression of what you believe in or how you would like to go about living your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true that people have lost the ability to realize that an author doesn't 100% condone everything his characters do. Like, we even saw that with the end of Game of Thrones. Like, people yeah, have the dumbest insane. reactions to that. It was so bizarre how they would think, they would think that, like, I don't even want to go into Game of Thrones because it's been done to death right now. But, sure. people, but we, yeah. we all know what we're, what is being yeah. gestured to with the Game exactly. of Thrones uh, ending, suddenly <laughs> driving people completely insane. Like, <laughs> So um again, one of the one of the things Langham was talking about just then in the uh digging up the uh the nastiness of the ruling class, which is something that happens in, in your book. There's a, a chapter in there where like um a rich art guy takes you takes you, the book you, to mm-hmm. Columbia and you get horribly mutilated and probably killed or something. Yes. And yeah. um like as I was reading that. I was, yeah, as I do, like read one paragraph, check Twitter for 20 minutes, re- come back, read another paragraph. As, um, as we do these days, yeah. yes. I know. And um, the um, the big news story that dropped was that uh, Jeffrey Epstein has finally got arrested for decades of being a hit, horrible pedophile who trafficked young women to I- remote islands in order to pimp them out to the richest men in the world, including many presidents and CEOs and celebrities. And that whole thing has been, everyone who cared to know about it has known about it for absolutely years, but it's finally gotten to the point where someone could arrest him. And um, yeah, the, just the, the idea that has come up in, in that and in your book and in like, crazy conspiracies like QAnon that the rich are doing these like depraved sexual things behind closed doors. It's even in, yeah, it's in less than zero and everything like that seems like a really powerful idea. That's like been around for so long in so many different cultures. You can find it in like ancient Rome. You can find it in native American cultures even. Um, like, why did that resonate for you specifically? And why did you want to put some of that in, in your book? Well, uh, as you've said, th- this is kind of in the background of our culture a lot of the times. So and there's cert- certainly a uh, precedent for this in literature. I mean, even when we're, when we're talking about Saad and, and people like this. Uh, for me in particular, why this resonates uh, with my personal story is that in the time that I quit performing, I, um, I mean, it's a complicated situation, but basically I had a medical scare that prevented me or made it 
clear to me that I should not be doing porn uh, anymore, but I was still doing sex work and predominantly with men. Uh, at first I was mostly camming and then in, in person and, you know, the people that can afford this typically are wealthier and, and whether or not they're wealthy by objective standards, they certainly have more money than I do. Um, that character and that story is based off a real person. And while I did not go to Columbia, I did have the relationship with him that um, it's depicted for most of that story. And so you get to know, I mean, you get to know wealthy people almost explicitly by means of their sexual fetishism, which is always, or not always, but in most cases, something hiding from everyone else in their life. I mean, I found that sex work, uh, meaning like being a hooker, not necessarily going to porn sets, because that's a different thing where you're paid to have sex with someone else who's also just trying to get a job. Uh, but when you're fucking someone who needs something specifically from you, you know, it's a, it's a lot like therapy. They're, they're often very lonely, emotional, trying to tell you something that that is kind of a secret of theirs. Do you know what I mean? So this all becomes, it was just very hard for me to deal with on a regular basis. Um, This having just, I don't know. Yeah. It it felt like they're just unloading burden all of the time. And I think it has to do somewhat with my disposition that I would play into that. Um, Uh, offer myself in some emotional capacity because I, I felt like that was that would allow me to continue getting these gigs or particularly to keep seeing the same person over and over again but um yeah i i never got i mean i was never mutilated or anything like that as, as you see in the book but it, it was just all this this relationship via like kind of fetishism and like these kind of emotional extremity. And I don't know that that's where all that comes from. Mm. Yeah. And is it, is that common then to be in porn and also be in other parts of sex work? Uh, Yeah. Um, Very much so now. And yeah, I think in the past too, um, particularly with women and gay men, I mean, I, the more I got to know, like, quote unquote, straight male performers, um, I would hear more stories like this. But I think they're less open about it in public, um, at least at the time that I was performing, because well, I don't know. I, th- I think in the culture, we've seen a lot more acceptance of like fluid men in, in very recent years. Now it's like all corporate brands kind of have like a pride month and stuff like that. But, you know, 10 years ago, that was not necessarily the case. And in porn, it was actually quite sexually conservative in, in terms of uh, coming about out about sexual identity. And, and I don't know that my, I mean, I'm predominantly straight. I would say I'm definitely enough sex with plenty of men, um, sometimes for fun, but more often for money. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's common to answer your question. Yeah. It's very common. People, people are hookers. I don't know. And- I guess like you you say when you can when you have that like brand behind you of being a porn star, the kind of people you can who can afford you are rich folks and yeah. Like um you mentioned in the 
the last chapter, the women getting paid 15 grand to go out to Dubai to be with some oil shake. So, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's a real thing. There is <laughs> one prince of Dubai. I don't think this is a secret. I mean, I don't know. I don't give a shit. So it's like not like he's going to find me off of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, the, one of the princes of Dubai regularly flies out um, porn stars and pays them exorbitant amounts of money. Uh, they, they stay in this hotel by themselves and they have to smuggle the money back because you're only allowed to bring $10,000 in cash. So all these agencies now that work to like send out someone else with you. So they stuff their suitcase with the other 10 grand and maybe there's more than that. It's, it's a whole thing, but it seems very sketch because if you get caught for that in Dubai, I think the consequences are much more dire than in the United States. Well, geez. Yeah, rich people, huh? Yeah, there you go. Cool. So, um, so what's next for you? You mentioned you've got a something coming out in uh, in the fall. Yeah, I don't know the exact date yet. This is um, somewhat recent news. Uh, I have another book which is still a little bit in the auto fiction, much more straight up horror and fiction and. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of the direction I'm wanting to go. I think prior to porn, I wanted to either write horror novels or make horror movies or, or just live in that universe. And then um, I had a lot of stories to tell based on my career, and that kind of sidetracked me. Uh, sidetracked me. I'm not, I don't regret it, but um, now that it's kind of over, I'm, I'm leaning more in that direction. So. Mm. I found a press that is run by Philip Best of the uh, the noise band White House. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, oh, yeah. I know of them. Yep. Okay, so so Philip has this little press called Amphetamine Sulfate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those guys who are putting out that um, the one you were talking about earlier. Yeah, the Megan Carvel book. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and and some other really great stuff. Some of the early books look um the design is very like zine or like chat book style stuff they're getting a little bit more sophisticated uh a friend of mine was like did they look like nazi vd pamphlets or something like that (laughs) yeah he's bringing off the uh the fashy aesthetic he had in white house to this sure yeah yeah Um, in fact i can see like the um I remember the looking at some of those like self-printed um, zines that they would put out and put into like um, things where there's like really, really uh, transgressive stuff in there, like way over the line sometimes. And yeah, I can definitely see the the aesthetic at play here. Yeah, I think he is much. Uh, I don't know. Talking to Philip these days. He, he does not seem like super into that vibe anymore. I mean, I think, I don't know. What is the the main dude from white house who started um, that? Band? I forget his name, but uh, yeah, he was, yeah, but he's, he was like, exactly. seems much more like that. Just consistently aggressive vibe. And then like Peter Sotos was in the band for a little mm, bit. Yeah. And his books are of course, um, very much over the line. They're <laughs> difficult for me to read, to be quite honest, though. I, I do find yeah. them 
interesting. Uh, yeah, but but in any case, it's coming out this fall. It's called The Magician, and it's actually a part of a larger art project that I did with some friends of mine over the course of five years. It involves uh, photography and video, so we're releasing hopefully a companion book that's like a fine art photo book, and then we'll have a film. I don't know exactly when that will come out, but it's sort of being edited right now. And uh, okay. yeah, so there's a lot of cool material i think to come out around that cool so that's gonna be in the fall it's the magician cool and like the film is that gonna be like a feature length thing or is it a short film or what no it'll be a short film it'll, it'll probably be about 10 minutes and it was originally supposed to to kind of be about be the same thing as the book but now it's uh, it's sort of about the process of making it because um, in some ways we failed to complete the project due to financial restraints etc cool. okay yeah we'll, we'll check that one out then yeah make, like uh ping me when it's uh when it's coming out absolutely that sounds cool yeah i'd like to see like to see you go fully into horror because the horror bits in uh body to job were like we said some of the some of the strongest bits so oh, thank you very much yeah, folks at home, do check out Body to Job. It is, um, yeah, it, it goes all over the damn place. It's going to shock you. That's good. It, it's, it's, it's very good. So do check it out, folks at home. But um, so we're going to play out the episode with one of the bands who we have really liked for a long time, uh, Immortal Bird. They've just signed to Twenty Bucks Spin, who is one of the labels I think we've played like probably like four times over the last month on here as they just keep putting out incredible music. They're just so good at death metal. They're just yeah. so good as a label. They're just so good. Yeah, they have the, like the, the best ear for this. And this and Immortal Bird probably aren't as death metal as, you know, like the other guys on here. But um they're they're still heavy as fuck. They're really, really great guys. They were on the um, uh, Riffs for Reproductive Justice compilation that's come out and is still the number one album on Bandcamp, I believe. And on there as well is just like every other great band that we like, for, like four or five of them have been on the show. Just such a good compilation and Immortal Bird are on it. And that coincides with them having a new album out called Thrive on Neglect. It's got those cool mortal bird covers that they always seem to have, which are really creepy and weird and great. And um, yeah, I'm just going to play a little song called Vestigial Warnings. It's the third track off the album. And um, yeah, come back in a couple of days because we're doing, we're being reproductive and we're going to be talking to a lady from the band War on Women about creating safe spaces in the scenes and in bars in clubs in gig venues and it's so yeah we're gonna be talking to her about that and next week we got oh some some weird psychedelic shit from the 70s man gonna be oh hell yeah it's gonna be freaky i'm so and, fucking uh, stoked i'm yeah. i'm more practically stoked for for um for our next episode with um the person from War on Women, that's that's going to be a really good one. But also, I love me some psychedelic lit. 
I didn't yeah. want it to seem like I'm not excited for 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 our upcoming. <laughs> I'm so fucking stoked for psychedelic lit. Oh my god! <laughs> like, yeah, we got. There's gonna be Philip K. Dick. There's gonna be Terrence McKenna. There's gonna be uh, Robert Anton Wilson. It's gonna be all over the place. It's gonna be gonna be freaky. All so, our wacky mind melt shit. Yeah, it's we're gonna like do DMT live on the show. Don't hold us to that. Um. Okay, but here's Vistage of Warnings. <laughs> 